All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, new research published this Monday in the journal Animal Cognition. Are you a subscriber to Animal Cognition, by the way? No, but I think I should be. I feel like you should subscribe to Animal Cognition. Anyway, so there's new research published in Animal Cognition this week that found that cats recognize the goofy voice that their owners have for them. Okay, this is wonderful because you always kind of hope it's true when I'm like, chonk, come on, chonk. Or it's like, come on, baby tiny cat. Like, they all have their own voice. I have so many voices in one day, and I'm glad to know I'm not just doing it for myself. <laughs> no, and you know what? It was actually reassuring when I was reading a write-up of this research that most cat owners do this. We're not insane. We are collectively, but we're not like, none of us are outliers, you know? Wait, what's Eleanor's voice? Oh, I'm not doing it. That's fine. See, that's fine. No, I I do have like a, I made a parody James Taylor song, but I rewrote it to be about a a very pretty kitty. And (laughs) Um, and that's all I'm going to say. It's like too silly. It's too silly. Okay, that's fine. This week, we're joined by Lorena Austin, Kara Clank, and Dana Schwartz to take on the following questions. Why is anti-Semitism being used as a political tool again? What's it like running for state office against some of the nuttiest GOP candidates in the country? Are books an accessory, a message, or both? And when will these desperate fundraising emails stop? All this and more right now. Alyssa, I had a, a bad experience last night. You want to hear about it? Please tell me. Okay, so I heard the NBC News election night theme song last night. Oh, no. And the way my body reacted, I felt like I'd eaten like a very spicy meal and then done some cartwheels. It was like heartburn instantly. Agree. Instantly. Like, okay, so we're two weeks out from the election, less than two weeks Mm -hmm. out from election day. We're much longer than that from knowing how this whole election pans out, despite the efforts of cable news to be like, this is an event that we can tell the story of within a night. No, we can't. We absolutely can't. No. People are already voting early in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Uh, State-level polling is so unreliable that it's, like, functionally useless. And punditry about voter sentiment is, I would say, worse than useless. Agree. It's nearly wrong. It's, like, opposite of helpful. And I was thinking last night after I heard the song about the NBC heartburn song 
um, <laughs> about how Republicans have claimed the economy and crime as things they're good at handling, and it drives me absolutely nuts. I watched some of the debates last night, and it was 100%. It was like, Lee Zeldin, get that out of your mouth. It is the every time they brought something up, he's like, let's go back to the economy. It's like, dude, shut up. You literally have nothing to offer right now. Very recent history shows us that Republicans are absolute dog shit at both crime and the economy. Right. Like, I can't believe that, like, mainstream media has been hoodwinked enough to be like, oh, yes, 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 Republicans. Oh, yes, 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 economy. And it was, well, they had because, again, garbage. But there was the poll that came out a couple days ago that said, like, 71% of respondents said they prefer Republicans to deal with the economy. Hmm. Did they only survey Elon Musk? Like, who are these respondents? I think that the bigger question is, what do you think Republicans are going to do with the economy that makes you believe that they're better are they just saying that they're better at the economy like what concrete things have republicans said right. that lead you to believe that they're actually going to be good at the economy and like let's take a look at what happened over in the uk oh obviously huge differences between our different systems of government but former prime minister liz Truss, blink and you miss her uh, did some pretty Republican-style things. Yeah. Huge tax cut for the rich. Unsupported energy vouchers. Like, a bunch of stuff that wasn't paid for. Just, like, absolutely tanked the British economy. Like, And she's gone. And she's gone, and now there's somebody in there who is going to try very similar ideas to tackle the same problems, and they're probably not going to work because these things do not work. No. It's bad economics. And so anyway, after I heard the NBC election night song, which right now is playing in my head like a nightmare that is stalking me, I just wanted to take a second to say next month is going to be very annoying. So annoying. Actively participating in American democracy in its current form is a deeply annoying exercise. And I am tired and you are tired and everybody is tired, but fuckery never sleeps. Fuckery never sleeps. No. Fuckery is 24-7, 365. And so we don't get to sleep either. Just prepare for this next month to be very annoying. Leave it all on the field. Work as hard as you can up until election day and maybe after if you're somebody who deals in election law. <sighs> but fuckery never sleeps, so we don't get to sleep either. Okay. Pivoting to news story number one, anti-Semitism. It's back. It's never really left, but it's badder than ever. It's worse than ever. So it's in headlines right now because Kanye West made a series of anti-Semitic remarks during interviews and on social media. And as a result, he's been dropped by Adidas and Balenciaga and uh, Foot Locker and The Real Real. And Foot Locker. Okay, okay. Yeah, he's not saying great things. Um, this comes mere weeks after the House GOP caucus tweeted, what was it, Elon, Yeezy? Who's the last one? Who's the third one? Putin? No, no. not Putin. Those two are enough. <laughs> anyway, tweeted out their support of those two people who I would say are, yeah, I don't know if it's just me, but I, I feel like Elon and Kanye are two individuals who, for, for different reasons— can't really be relied on to act mm -hmm. in a rational manner and don't seem like they're acting in a rational manner. Like Kanye appears very dysregulated to me right now. No. I mean, consequences at least of his actions, Adidas dropping him. And I just have to say, fucking good for you, Adidas. You finally found God on this one. Like, 
It took them days to do anything. And you know what? It's like, and they leaked it. You know, it's all over the media. Oh, they're going to have to take a $250 million hit for doing the right thing. You know what? It's worth mentioning, I don't know, a company that does real things like Patagonia, Yvonne Chouinard, donating, putting the company in trust so that proceeds benefit the environment. Mm -hmm. And Adidas is like, oh, my God, we're going to miss $250 million. Though the one good thing is that by them dropping him, aside from it being the right thing, is that he's no longer a billionaire because it was apparently like $400 million of his wealth. So, I mean, I guess that's good. Yeah. I will say Adidas was founded by a member of the Nazi party. So, yeah. Yeah. They should have seen this, like, also years ago, he said, Kanye said something to the effect of, like, I could say a bunch of anti-Semitic shit and Adidas wouldn't drop me. Okay, if you're the company that he said that about, and then he actually says the anti-Semitic shit, I just feel like you have to respond faster than they did. You got to prep a rapid response for that, like you're pre-writing an obituary for a very old celebrity. 100%. You you get that happening. You got to just, you're like, okay, you know what? He's put that out there. Let's prep our rapid response for the inevitable time that we have to drop him. I will say that it's not just Kanye saying stuff. Right. There are actual anti-Semitic instances uh, that are on the rise nationwide, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Mm -hmm. uh, There were 2,717 incidents in 2021, which is a 34% rise from the year before. Yep. And just, you know, to be fair, 2020, a lot of people were staying inside, not really doing a lot of stuff. Still. Publicly, but that is, it should be 0%. We should have a decrease every year, you'd think, as we move toward a world where maybe we're, we're basing our social interactions on empathy and compassion rather than hate and fear but that's that's not the world we live in um good news though Alyssa, what kim kardashian fixed it oh did she on monday uh yeah just 24 hours before adidas uh did the right thing kim kardashian who who does know kanye right they're pals they know each other they are related Hate speech is never okay or excusable. I stand together with the Jewish community and call on the terrible violence and hateful rhetoric toward them to come to an immediate end. Wow, Kim, good job. Did Ivanka go straight that for you? That's, I mean, or you can do what the entire extended Kardashian family did, which was just all of them repost the same tile that Jessica Seinfeld had developed, which said, anti-Semitism is fucking wrong. But like, took everybody, took everyone in that family a really long time. Oh, man. They love empty gestures, don't they? And you know what makes me so mad, Aaron, as another sort of data point, is that if we just use Kanye as an example and his Twitter followers, he has 30 million Twitter followers. There are only 15 million Jews in the whole world. So it is a big deal mm-hmm. that, like, these people use their platforms in a way that is, I don't know, mm-hmm. anti-hate. Yeah, and in L.A., again, in the headlines for embarrassing reasons, um, mm-hmm. hate groups have been hanging banners on the 405, which is the busiest freeway in L.A., uh, If you're familiar with the city, you avoid the 405 if you possibly can because everybody is always stuck on it. They hung a sign over an overpass that read, Honk, if you know Kanye is right about the Jews, while offering Nazi salutes to oncoming traffic. Um, Completely, A, like there's a lot of Jewish people in Los Angeles, completely unacceptable display, completely disgusting display. But, you know, there are people are emboldened to do things like that now. And, um, It's really scary. It is. And worth noting that uh, this week we're coming up on the anniversary of the Tree of Life congregation shooting in Pittsburgh. 
it's really scary and bad. I was going to say, the, the thing is, too, these people who hang these anti-Semitic signs and people who want to look the other way, most anti-Semites don't just hate Jews. So please know that hate is coming for everyone. There is something to hate about everyone if you believe that supporting any kind of hate is acceptable. Right. Anti-Semitism and just straight up white supremacy are... They pretty much, uh, they share an address. They share a post office. P.O. Box. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> wow. We're not laughing about anti-Semitism, just that we both said P.O. Box. No, just the fact that our brains are the same thing. Um, and, you know, and I was I was looking at, when I was a kid, maybe I was, I grew up in a part of the country where there weren't, uh, there wasn't a big Jewish population. Rural Wisconsin, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's not very many Jewish people there. Um that maybe this is because of where I grew up. But when I was a kid and even into my 20s, I don't remember seeing headlines of resurgences and anti-Semitism happening so frequently. Like in 2018, there was a resurgence of anti-Semitism right before the election, if you recall. 2020, same deal. Yeah. 2016, it just feels like every election year now, there are voices in this country that feel emboldened to speak up with anti-Semitic and racist talking points and it's it's a really it's a bad trend. I'm against it. And I'm it's against terrible. it. Yeah. Bold, bold for us to come. We're against racism and anti-Semitism. Um, okay, on to another story that does not uh it's not a joyful story. Brittany Griner, WNBA star basketball player, is uh still in prison. A Moscow court rejected her appeal of her nine-year sentence on drug charges on Tuesday, uh, which was an anticipated result in the trial which was also kind of a a sham trial because it's Russia. Um, U.S. officials say they believe that eventually Griner will get sent home in a prisoner swap, Mm. but the whole process has been really frustrating to everybody, Uh, her friends, her fans, her family, her loved ones, everybody here, and um, it's, it's just very frustrating to watch. It is, and they say now she may be transferred to a penal colony, which is much more remote, and I can't imagine, uh, I can't imagine what that is like. Yeah. Um, so she's been incarcerated for more than eight months already. And her yep. immediate concern is how quickly she'll be transferred out of that penal colony. Yep. Uh, she is supposed to serve out her term in one, but is currently in a relatively safer jail in Moscow. Um, so hoping we get her out of there ASAP. Um, OK, final story before we take a break and get to our interview today. Um, gosh, this is this is just a trio of bad ones. It is. Bad stories. Um, U.S. students in most states and in almost all demographic groups have experienced big setbacks in both their math and reading scores, according to a national exam which was released on Monday, which shows that remote learning during the pandemic and closing down the schools was actually really harmful Mm -hmm. to students. Um, What do you make of this, Alyssa? I mean, it makes sense. You know, I think that we're just not just I feel like this is just the beginning of us seeing sort of the impact that the two years of COVID that we have gone through have impacted people. And it's everything from the remote learning, but not just the remote learning. It is it is when the kids did have to do remote learning who had, you know, relatively reliable broadband and Wi-Fi to be able to Mm -hmm. actually learn. Mm -hmm. And um Yeah. And this was based on, I think, fourth graders and eighth graders. Mm -hmm. And a meager 26 percent of eighth graders were proficient from the expectation, which is down, though worth noting, though, too, down from 34 percent in 2019. So it is a drop. 
Uh, but it is not like huh. it's not like they were anyone was clocking in at 75 percent uh, prior to the pandemic, right. which is also bad, but worse now. Yeah. Can I try and like identify a possible silver lining here? What is that? Okay, possible silver lining here is we have the raw data now that shows how important schools are to student achievement. Yes. School cannot be reduced to something kids only go to a couple days a week or do entirely remotely. It is not acceptable for us to, as a country, to continue to cut resources that are supposed to go to teachers and schools. What we need are well-funded, well-trained, well-supported schools that children can attend in person. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, our entire country will suffer. So, you know, I, I think that maybe a silver lining to this is that we've talked about on this show before how Republicans and conservatives really would love to gut the education system so much that it becomes a, a privatized, effectively like a privatized thing that people need to pay for. Right. Um, and we are so far from that being something that anybody would stand for, given how much kids performance suffered when they didn't have access to like their public schools in person so this i think actually shows that what we need is to better equip and better fund our schools and make sure that kids can attend schools in person Um, because that kids can't learn like right just over a computer no Um, and i i feel like the ones that did probably had at least one parent who just drove themselves to the brink of insanity. Totally. Trying to support their kids being like teachers and working full time. And usually that that's, you know, the mom that did that. So, so yeah, uh, in-person school, necessary. Otherwise, this is going to happen over and over again. Yes. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, a great interview. And welcome back. Alyssa, you and I talk about this a lot, how important it is to pay attention to what is going on at the local and state level, wherever you are. Vitally important. Vitally important. That's where, I mean, look, is our national politics kind of glamorous? Also corroded. Terrible. Yeah, totally. But like, who gets the shit done? The people at the local and state level. And so we're really excited to welcome our guest today. Today's guest is running for the Arizona State House in the new competitive District 9. The State House is controlled by the GOP right now, but this fifth-generation Arizonan might change that. They have an ambitious agenda, but this former Mesa Community College student body president is no stranger to working hard to meet ambitious goals. Lorena Austin, welcome to Hysteria. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, this is such a, an important space and place. I'm super excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to run for the Arizona State House? Yeah, um, it's been a long journey. And if you'd asked me even in January if I was going to run, that would not have been the case because I was applying to law school this year. And when I found out about this new district, it literally could not have been drawn up any more perfectly than the space and neighborhood that my family's resided in for over 100 years on my father's side. And so in that time, too, in this 100 years, they've also been very involved in community activism. My nana and thought that owned a grocery store here, which was a segregated neighborhood at the time called the Washington Escobedo Park neighborhood. They owned a little tiendita, and they were big champions for our community. I mean, they helped change some blue code laws. They were well known for always being there and providing assistance and even goes as far to helping people find housing and shelter and being able to stay here and support families. 
That, you know, service-minded attitude really passed on to my father, and he ended up becoming a civil rights attorney. He was also involved in the Chicano movement, as well as my mother. They met in the Bay Area. And so service and advocacy to your community has always been something very strong in my life, and I'm so lucky to have had that exemplified to me. Um, On my mom's side of the family, they come from very working, hard-class roots. Uh, My grandmother, who's my biggest idol inspiration, was a farm worker for most of her life. And so... Again, someone, you know, who taught me to work hard and show up for my community. Um, My mom is also a social worker and teacher. And, you know, that has just kind of always been something that I aspired to be, not necessarily a political leader, but someone who could just really advocate for their community because we know our community. And so, again, when this race kind of opened up, I just really thought, you know, someone who's actually from here, who understands our community, who's built those relationships and is so passionate about it. Like I live here, I work here, I volunteer here. This is my home. And I want to make sure that it, you know, stays that way for community members here in LD9. You know, there's something special about teacher's kids. We've said that a lot on this pod. We're made of something, and not just because I'm a teacher's kid too. But I feel like we run into a lot of teacher's kids and they all have a little bit of something extra. So Phoenix's metro area has the highest inflation rate in the country, which you know, not a great distinction. <laughs> Polls say that the economy and inflation are the problems that voters care about the most. So what is Mesa already doing to address this issue? And how would you aid those efforts in office? Yeah, I think there's things we could be doing at the state level that would really help ease some of this burden off of our constituents. So here in Mesa, and then we do have two precincts of Tempe that is just sit on the west side of the town. But I think, you know, we've talked to our local leaders and housing is a big issue and local municipalities and cities not being able to have that control and having to work with developers to provide, you know, more housing and affordable housing. And for me, destigmatizing what affordable housing looks like, because if you think about it, too, that looks like me right now. Um, I'm a first time generation home buyer and I'm you know, disenfranchised because I can't compete with other people that have more capital than me. I work multiple jobs as an educator. I don't make zero dollars and I work really hard, but I don't make enough now to buy a 1,200 square foot, half a million dollar home in this district that my family's called home for, you know, a century. So we could be doing different things, especially on the housing level. Working in higher education, I think of retraining, right, constantly. And we talk about, you know, climate and Arizona should be the, you know, most Uh, clean energy, sustainable energy, you know, moving forward in the future with how much, you know, solar we have. So retraining our residents here to ensure that they have better paying jobs and being able to compete in what we now see. But yeah, we had the third fastest growing economy inflation here in Arizona, and we are the third bottom for resources like affordable housing and resources that could really help our residents here. So there's a lot of things we could be doing. But what I tell people, I don't try to make these huge grand promises is, is I can't do those things if we can't at least tie or flip. Um, certainly can't do those things as a legislator, too, if we're electing, you know, extreme state slate here in Arizona as well. So there's a lot of things we need to do. And so knowing that, too, that obviously I'm hoping for a blue wave and I'm confident in that, but I'm also very pragmatic, especially being a community advocate, is I have to know, you know, those options and what's ahead of us. And so I have to still be thinking of how I can impact my community in the most effective way. Lorena, your state has proposed lots of anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. Can you give our listeners some examples of those legislation and tell us how you think your voice would impact the conversation in the House? Yeah, it's been very extreme. And, you know, people are talking about this at the doors. And when I go up to a door and introduce myself and 
talk about, find that common ground between us, whether that's a community focused lens or um, just something in common that we have. And then I ask, you know, what's important to you? And man, if it's not abortion, education issues, I mean, the community is talking about it. So in terms of abortion, and that might be surprising to people who think of Arizona as the wild, wild west, but people understand how important that life-saving healthcare is. And even more, I think importantly, is even men are the ones that bring it up too at some of the doors, which I think has been interesting. So the issue on abortion has really galvanized people here in Arizona because they understand the implications that it has. I mean, this will cost people their lives. Uh, there's no exceptions for rape or incest, and that's just absolutely unacceptable and draconian, right? Right? And so it's definitely on the minds of people. And again, I mean, that's the importance of having a legislature that is going to listen to the will of the people, because we've had time and time and again in Arizona, if you're familiar, especially when we talk about education um, and funding education, we've had Prop 208, which was a bipartisan, you know, overwhelming effort that people said they wanted to fund education. And then the legislature said, no, too bad. You really don't know what you're talking about. And what kind of legislature is that? We talk about a tax on our trans youth and the LGBTQIA community, I mean, that's a community I'm a part of. And I'll tell you, as someone who went through public school education, you could not have found a more heteronormative education you know, to be imposed upon somebody. And I still, you know, am very queer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, this idea that we're entering this stage that's just influencing children to be in this demonic education is just unfounded and unreal. And if anything, we need to understand that this community, and especially children, they should be in a safe place where they're accepted and heard. And that's what we're talking about, accepting these communities because we know that 50%, and I think that statistic's probably low, of young people that identify in this community consider suicide. I mean, because they're not accepted in their communities, that's unacceptable. I mean, how can we live with ourselves thinking in this way? And thankfully, you know, I'll be honest that across my mind, and, and I'm so grateful that I had a support system of friends and community that, you know, when I'm here and I'm so proud to represent this community. And I hope that I inspire others to know that, you know, they can succeed, they can be prosperous, they can lean on one another and really be authentically who they are. So what we're talking about is I'm advocating for children to be authentically who they are and to be loved and supported. And I think that's the job of education and that's the job of legislators to ensure that every one of their constituents, constituents are not just 18 and above who can vote for them. They're every single individual, no matter their age. And we need to be advocating to them and listening to them and supporting them. I want to get into the education piece, but I also wanted to follow up on something that you said about men bringing up abortion. I would love to hear more about how those conversations go. Like, are they concerned in a way that you haven't encountered before? Like, how do they bring it up with you? Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that, you know, women and individuals who become pregnant, that's something that we has always been on, on our minds because we understood that abortion was on the line and what that meant inherently. And then when it happened, I think some men really understood, wow, the impact that that could have, you know, on themselves. And so at the doors, I have been surprised a few times when I've said, you know, what issues are important to you? And I'll say women's rights, women's health care. Because I think, and I would ask them to expand upon that, and it's either a sibling of theirs or a loved one or their partner, if they're talking about family planning or just anything, I think shows a little bit that we are holding men accountable as well and having those more difficult conversations. And I 
applaud, you know, women and individuals who are being fearless and unapologetic about having, you know, this very conversation that impacts our lives directly. So it has been a little bit surprising, but also I've had to have difficult conversations about, yeah, this isn't going to affect you, you know, in the ways that, you know, when someone wants to come at me and be like, well, I don't know if it's a big deal. And I mean, excuse you, you don't think it's a big deal. You don't have, you know, you don't have a, a woman in your life that this could affect. And as a woman, and I think this is real, like, I know that I could be sexually assaulted at any moment. Like that sounds... I hope that doesn't sound wild of an idea, but I think as a woman, we know how unprotected we are in this society and how real and serious this is. I could be one in three any day. And I had that conversation with a close friend of mine and he was just so taken aback. You know, he's a father and he was just like, I never thought of that, that you in your thirties are still thinking of that. And I was like, I don't think that'll ever go away from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, uh, I think we all can relate to that pretty hard. And I don't think that you're like, that's not a wild thing to say. That's something that we're all thinking about all the time. And it's good that men are seeming to be a little bit more empathetic to that now. I wish it would have come before, but glad that it's happening now. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about education. Arizona is in the bottom five states for education funding and you work in education. So why do you think the state doesn't treat this as more of a priority? And what do you think your district would need extra education funding for? Yeah. So as an educator, I work in higher education, so community colleges, but I see the direct impacts of K-12 funding, you know, coming into our our colleges and seeing the unpreparedness that some of the students have. And I don't attribute that to the teachers or, you know, lack of resources they had, but, you know, children, students, college students are taking remedial courses, just might not be as prepared, not really understand how to navigate that system. But here in my district, Mesa Public Schools is the largest public school system in the state. And so what we're going to see from that, too, is some people might say, well, they're kind of fine right now. I'm like, but you're going to see that lack of funding very quickly in the next few years when we can't, you know, increase infrastructure for some of our crumbling schools. And something I always like to point out about education in public schools, it has never been equitable. So it depends on what side of the tracks you're living in in these cities. We're talking about redlining and neighborhoods, and that's very prevalent here in this district as across the country. So obviously there's some public schools that are way better off than others. And so I always try to point that out as well. There's already schools that have had lack of resources, unfortunately. And so looking at those both and situations, I think is really important in that conversation. Um, That's what really gets me going sometimes (laughs) is that uh, we have never been, you know, doing a great job on that front. And so... um, in terms of two of this funding, why they don't fund it. I mean, it's a very polarizing political issue. I mean, we just expanded vouchers, which we don't have a two-tiered system for education funding. And so those vouchers literally siphon just millions of dollars from our public schools. And so this is kind of this very long term. It's been happening for decades, but now it's really coming to this like precipice where young families are a very big part of my district. And, you know, they're asking me about like, hey, I want my child to go to a, a good school. And we the foundation of our neighborhoods are surround schools. I mean, especially here in my area, you can't go, you know, to a neighborhood without running into the elementary school. And I walk these neighborhoods. Um, and so it's something very fundamentally important. And something that we address, like we have this archaic 1980 aggregate expenditure limit that caps education funding at a certain price point, right? 
And we're in the 21st century now. I mean, just think of technology advancements and think of all the new resources that we need. Um, We're in a teacher crisis right now. We have over 50,000 people that are eligible to teach, but don't because they know that they're not going to have that support. They won't have these resources. And time and time again, I mean, I wouldn't be on the ballot without teachers a teacher in particularly who literally took me around. Her name's Christina Bustos. She's a powerhouse. She took me to get my first signature from a neighborhood (laughs) and taught me so much. So again, teachers are this life force in my campaign and just everything that we do. But I am so beside myself that every year we expect our teachers to come and just simply advocate for basic funding that they need to support our future and our students, staff and teachers. Your opponent, Marianne Mendoza, has been making headlines because pictures of her in blackface. Why do people keep doing this? Why do people keep doing this? Why? You know, to quote my own book title, who thought that was a good idea? And you called for her to withdraw from the race. How has campaigning against her been? I will be super honest. So it's herself and Kathy Pierce because there's two house seats here. And my running mate, Seth Blotman, and I... um, We haven't seen that. (laughs) To be completely honest, they have not shown up to our debates. Um, It's kind of like they lie in wait, I guess, and just maybe. And and maybe they're in different circles, obviously. But in this district, it's a pattern. It's a historical pattern. So Kathy Pierce's brother is Russell Pierce, who is the only recalled legislator in the state of Arizona who was the author of discriminatory bills like SB 1070. So with Joe Arpaio and the immigration sweeps that terrorized our community so much that a bipartisan effort to oust him was prevailed and he was ousted. So she's running. And then we have Miriam Mendoza, who is, this pattern is just normal for her. I mean, she can't have Twitter because she kept posting anti-Semitic white nationalist viewpoints and oh my gosh you can't make this stuff up you can't and got cut from an rnc video or speaking lineup because you're too racist and that's saying a lot (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's not funny but it's very funny it's not right it's funny what the wtf like what the fuck yeah yeah it's wtf funny it's not like haha funny Oh, my goodness. You can't make it up. And, you know, the Senate candidate to this area, Robert Scantlebury, they're all just, you know, spew the same rhetoric back and forth. And we had said, you know, before the primaries, we're like, man, we think we probably have the most extreme, you know, candidates here in this district at that time. And then the primaries happened. It was like, oh, no, it's the whole state. So (laughs) unfortunately... But I would say, you know, very frankly, that they are not representative of this district. I mean, West Mesa is diverse. There's so many different experiences and backgrounds, religious, you know, ethnic wise. And it's just no resemblance to the place that I call home and have known for so long. So it's just mind boggling to me that someone who's like running to create policy for not just their community, but the state is going to just continually, continually spew racist rhetoric and ideologies and propaganda. And I can't imagine how this person would keep in mind her constituents when writing policy. So we always talk about how we're running to represent everybody. It doesn't matter the letter next to your name. I don't care if it's a Republican, Independent, Democrat. I will talk to anyone because I believe in those constructive, really hard conversations. I believe in building trust in a community that for so long has been disenfranchised. And that was, you know, another reason that I ran because unfortunately, 
I didn't see anyone from a political party, you know, in my neighborhood. And I've been very upfront about that with the Dem Party. You know, I didn't know what an LD was. I didn't know what a PC was. I went to an LD meeting and I asked, you know, they probably thought I was just wild. Like, I excuse me, I don't know what a PC is. And they're like, this person's running for office. But again, it really spoke to me. I know who's doing unsheltered advocacy in Pioneer Park, a large park we have here. I know who's doing community development, helping small business loans during COVID. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of community advocacy. And that's what I want to bring. You know, I'm running not because I'm some political party savior. Uh -uh, That's not me. But I think there's resources that could be dedicated to my community that aren't getting there because that relationship hasn't been built. And that takes time, too. So it's a whole thing. But back to I'm sorry, I just got totally flipped there. But back to, you know, Miriam Mendoza (laughs) and Kathy Pierce. I mean, you couldn't pick two people that were more unrepresentative of our community, period. The end. They're not running to represent everybody. They're running to represent a faction of people that think like them and only them. And that ideology and their perspective will hurt people. It will harm people. And that's why we can't have them representing this district. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you bring up a really important point, which is that if people who are outside of Arizona or outside of the West just judged Arizona by the headlines that their more wild party nominees were making, they would think Arizona was just like a bunch of Facebook posts like fighting. Um, But, you know, I live in California. I've spent some time in Arizona. I know it's a great state with great people in it. It's more than just a, a bunch of angry boomers fighting on Facebook. Um, So as a longtime Arizonan, what do you think is your favorite thing about your state? And what do you think your state's best kept secret is? Oh, my gosh, man, if you haven't seen an Arizona sunset, you're missing out. It is like one of the most beautiful, (laughs) consistently beautiful things um, in the world. What I love so much about Arizona and my community is, uh, you hear me say community all the time, because that's literally just how I live and breathe. But an example of that is how community comes together regardless. And I live in a place where for so long, community has had to depend on one another and not a government entity to save them. And so for me, I see that a lot. And that has been exemplified to me in a lot of ways. But when COVID happened, I had come back to college after 10 years and I graduated in 2020 and then it was COVID. And that was like just my call to action. I mean, I'd always been involved, but like that was really like, okay, I'm, I'm doing what I know how to do best. And I volunteered at the food bank. I did the intake for 3,000, helped 3,000 cars coming through and no one really knew what was going on and just helping people get food. But also my incredible friends at Republic Empanada, who are family friends of mine for decades, when the dining room areas were shut down, they made it a collection space and center uh, for indigenous communities up north. Because at that time, Doctors Without Borders were coming to Arizona. Like how embarrassing the indigenous communities up north in Arizona had the highest rates of COVID-19 and it was people like my friends and we decided to, you know, collect these supplies. It was toiletries, food, PPE, and we did it for months and we would get pallets of water from Costco. We'd have to rent these trucks and take it all the way up to, you know, these indigenous rural communities. And that's the type of community that I think really comes to the forefront, something that I love so much about, you know, my not just my district, but I think Arizona. And, and you're right, you know, if people were to look at Arizona, even my very close friends are like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like you all just pick off of each other, right? There's like Texas, Arizona, Florida, what the fuck, right? And that's what I love to show people is that at the end of the day, 
the residents here and the communities are so resilient because they've always had to be, and that's what they know, and that's what they do best, um, is band together when everything is so dire, when there's a global pandemic, uh, you know that someone from your community is going to step up and do the right thing. Not because they want to, because we have to, we need to. Like, how are we going to survive otherwise if not, you know, leaning on each other? So um, that's my favorite part about Arizona. Oh, well, Lorena Austin, you've sold me on the state of Arizona. <laughs> Thank you so much Same. for joining us uh, and best of luck in the election coming up. We will be keeping an eye on it and uh, hope to have you back when you are a state legislator. <laughs> Would love that. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and efforts and, you know, keep up the good work. I appreciate you both. We have to take a break. But before we do that, which of the week, Alyssa? Who's this week's Witch of the Week? I've got a witch, Erin. You know, you love Utah the way I love Hawaii. Mm. And so this week we have Pele. In Hawaiian mythology, Pele is the creator of the Hawaiian Islands. Her name means she who shapes the sacred land, which she does with volcanoes and their molten lava. Mm. Legend goes that Pele herself journeyed on her canoe from the island of Tahiti to Hawaii. When on her journey, it was said she tried to create her fires on different islands, but her sister, Namaka, was chasing her, wanting to put an end to her. In the end, the two sisters fought each other, and Pele was killed. With this happening, her body was destroyed, but her spirit lives on at Kilauea on the big island. They say that when she's angry, she'll explode. Her body is the lava and steam that comes from the volcano. In addition to her role as goddess of fire, Pele is also regarded as the goddess of hula. Who doesn't love hula? Wow. Uh, aspirational and relatable. The steam, the molten lava. Totally. And dancing to celebrate the steam and molten lava. An urban legend states that Tutu Pele, which is what she is called as a sign of respect, herself occasionally warns locals of impending eruptions, appearing in the form of either a beautiful young woman or an elderly woman with white hair, sometimes accompanied by a small white dog, but always dressed in a red mumu. Pele is said to walk along the roads near Kilauea, but will vanish if passerbys stop to help her. According to the legend of Pele's curse, her wrath will fall on anyone who removes items from her island. Every year, tourists return small natural items from the islands to seek Pele's forgiveness. It is believed <laughs> Pele's curse was invented in the mid-20th century to deter tourist depredation. Uh, okay, well, that's a really good invention. I like, I support that type of miss and disinfo. If it convinces people to not be assholes when they're visiting Hawaii. Right. Don't take the lava rocks, bitches. Yeah, leave them. Pele is going to get mad at you for sure. Um, okay, great Witch of the Week. That was a fun month of Witches of the Week. Yeah. We'll have to find another season of Witches to celebrate. Yeah. Maybe we could just do it on like solstices and equinoxes or... Something good because witches are cool. There are so many witches we can't even get to. So many female figures in folklore that are sometimes nice but usually scary. A little saucy, little axe to grind. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, I, res I respect all of those traits. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, personal political. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe Mushroom Coffees will keep you focused all day long. 
Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, mean, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time yeah. when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, <laughs> not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount, text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have. To, I refuse to be uncomfortable I refu- if I want to be productive. I refuse <laughs> to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle, which is like yeah. Viore is perfect for it because they the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. They're very, like, on oh. a, it's like a couch nap. You know, you have like a, oh yeah. you've got like maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a like small break. I'm very tired. I'm going to just like lay down for 20 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect for couch napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put a a blazer and like... Denim shirt. Denim Denim shirt, blazer, leggings. So easy. 100%. And of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit, falling just above the knee while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. That's perfect. He is like, I think my, my dad is one of those people that just like beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're... 
they look like a security blanket that a 30 year old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like um, our dads are the same yeah yeah but um my dad has had his for like a couple years now and i think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when i met up with um family on a on a short weekend trip and they still looked great it was like dad your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering his stereo listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Welcome back. I want to start today's segment by quoting a tweet from one of our panelists. Um, Alyssa, I think you'll recognize this because I think I've brought this tweet up before. Hmm. Uh, Here's the tweet. It's from 2017 and I had to like Google it and I found it. Bell, there goes the baker with his tray like always. Baker, well, there goes Belle singing her daily meme song about us. (laughs) That's Dana Schwartz. It's Um, a throwback. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a throwback from Dana Schwartz. Dana is a New York Times bestselling author. Her new book, Immortality: A Love Story, is available for pre order. It helps authors. It helps so much that the publishing people are just like on their knees, being like, "Dana, please tell the people to pre order." So I'm telling you, please. <laughs> the holidays are coming up. You can just like give a printout of the beautiful cover art and be like, "This is what I pre ordered for you for Christmas." It's thoughtful. It really is. <laughs> it's like you found a printer. You found a printer and you printed something out for me and you also pre-ordered a book. That's a very good book. So Dana, we're really excited to have you today. Rounding off the panel, her podcast, That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast, is coming to the Midwest in November and her show, Better Half Comedy, is in L.A. every Wednesday. Kara Clank, welcome to Hysteria. Thanks for having me back, guys. It's always a shock every time I get the invite to return. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How you been? What have you been up to? Me, I have been touring with my podcast, so I actually just got back two days ago, and I was gone for nine days, which is the longest I've ever left my kids before, but my husband was able to fly his parents in to obviously help him, because (laughs) men can do nothing alone, and... (laughs) 
but yeah, it was great. It was, it was really fun to go to, we were in the South. We were like, well, we started in DC and then we were in like North Carolina, Alabama, Atlanta and Nashville. And it was great. It was fun to meet all the people that listen and, you know, get out on the road. Do you ever find that when you immerse yourself too much in like crime media that you start to have like nightmares about crime? Oh, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. Like we used to like research the crimes right before bed and I started having nightmares and I was like, I gotta stop doing that. Yeah. And also like <laughs> my co-host Lisa makes fun of me because I'm always like, now that I have kids, SVU hits a little different. And she's <laughs> like, oh, so child murder was okay before. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> but now I have like a specific child that I, two children that I care about that I'm like, uh, <laughs> the world is terrible. But you know, obviously I still keep plugging along because I do love the show and the content. But yes, that stuff does fully give me nightmares. And I think you just get more paranoid in general. Uh-huh. Like, like, I don't know. You're like, what's that guy doing? You know, uh-huh. Just like, you know, <laughs> right. I don't like, I don't like the cut of his jib. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the reason I brought up Dana's tweet at the top of this segment is because today we're talking about like projecting intelligence and the first fictional character that came to mind when we were talking about signifying intelligence was Belle from Beauty and the Beast, who really... The longer I sit with this animated film that I first watched in 1994, I want to say, the more I'm like, Belle really was high on the smell of her own farts. She (laughs) really thought that she was like the smartest person ever. And it also kind of came to mind this week because we were talking about like book talk and the importance of TikTok and social media in selling both selling books and selling yourself as a reader of books. So I want to yeah. kind of get into the ways that we project intelligence or make an effort to look smart and whether those things are like obnoxious or actual helpful social adaptations. Alyssa, have you ever tried to look smart? I, that sounds like a very mean question. Have you ever even tried? No, it's <laughs> fine because now I look like me. But yes, I did for many, many years try to look smart. I mean, there was like the forced professionalism of being a paralegal, which was like, you must just wear a suit. That was different. But like one of my most embarrassing slash heartening exchanges with Barack Obama when I first started working for him was when it was 2006 and we were traveling all across the place for the midterms. And I would keep a copy of The Economist magazine with my real magazines inside. (laughs) And I had people, I had In Touch. I mean, not let's be honest, it wasn't people. It was like In Touch, (laughs) Entertainment Weekly. A fine publication. Star. Star. Obviously. (laughs) Not star. Entertainment Weekly does not go in the same category. It was 20 years ago, Kara. Alyssa Star is like a glossy National Enquirer. Star had no. better pictures. <laughs> anyway, I thought that he was asleep in the back of the car where we were driving. And so I took out The Economist, but took out my real magazines. And he's like, you think I didn't know this? One eye open. He's like, you think I didn't know this? And then we were both like reading the magazines together. He's like, I don't like you and trust you because I think you read The Economist. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's good. But that went on for a long time before he found me out. It was like The Economist, The Atlantic. Like, you name it. I tried to look like I was as smart as I could be. Yeah. Dana, I would love to hear your thoughts on 
signifying intelligence um, because I yeah I, I feel like you have a lot of opinions on Bell and a lot of opinions oh, yeah. on <laughs> Bell like characteristics in, in other people. So what in your mind is looking smart? What is that? What is how does that manifest? I guess I want to make everything everything I'm about to say it like comes from a place of self-loathing and insecurity. Like I do think genuinely a lot of the things that like make me uncomfortable are is because it reminds me of myself and like I think I have a bad attention span and like I don't think I'm smart enough or well-read enough or I think I should dress better. And so, yeah, I definitely see on TikTok because I'm I'm a youthful child where you know I belong on TikTok with among my peers there's like the trend of like dark academia where where people are dressing like they're Oxford grad students like that's the aesthetic like look like you're studying at Oxford and like books as aesthetic is like a big thing where it's like I think a lot of social media is like curating a persona that you can put out in the world that's palatable. Like one of them is like that girl or like it girl where it's like, you know, like dewy skincare skin and green smoothies. <laughs> uh, or like I'm an intellectual, like New Yorker, like reading the New Yorker, walking on the subway, cool coats. Like I do think that people, when they don't really know themselves, try to curate an aesthetic in the hopes that then the personality will follow. I do want to point out I have rainbow organized bookshelves, which people don't think is a signifier of intelligence because it's like, oh, she's just using the books as an aesthetic. But it's just because I have a brain that I need to organize things. And I thought it looked nice. <laughs> I did clock that because I knew what we were talking about today. And if I may interrupt for two seconds. Of course. I was originally such a judgy bitch about people doing that. I was like, oh, is that like how your books are organized by color? And now I fully have a shelf like that in my house. It just looks <laughs> nice. It was just like a better way that like they just don't look good. All like the ones that are out for the public, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just saw, I mean, I had like obviously seen it on Instagram and thought it looked yeah. cute. And it was like pandemic days. And I used to live in a studio apartment where like my bookshelves were the only thing on that wall. And so I was like, oh, well, it also has to be decor. And also it was very fun for me to like take all my, and like very cathartic to like take all the books out of the shelf and like put them back in order. And now, I mean, it's sort of, all over the place. And like, I have books all over my house that aren't organized, but this shelf is sort of the remnant of it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this other shelf is just nonsense. <laughs> Kara, have you ever put effort into like looking smart or projecting intelligence? These aren't real glasses. These glasses are fake. No, I'm kidding. They are real glasses. <laughs> no, like, no. Actually, I knew a girl that did that in college and I deeply, deeply judged her for it. I was like, I cannot believe you wear glasses that are fake. Like they were just glasses. I don't think I've ever done like a physical outward projection of intelligence that I can think of. Like, but I don't curate my Instagram in the way that I know what Dana's talking about exactly, but I just don't, I don't think I have the time or the eye for it. You know, mm -hmm. I just don't have the eye to make myself look better than I am on Instagram. But I don't know. I definitely have like a similarly fraught relationship with wanting to seem intelligent, feeling like I'm never as smart as the other people in the room and things like that. But I don't think I, I don't know. I only started wearing glasses like 
seven years ago. And I feel like it sort of did inform a little bit about like what people think of me, at least on stage or like when they see me. And I didn't even realize that was going to happen, but I think it does a little bit, you know? I will confess I, in my like cringier days when I was trying to like curate my Instagram more like conscientiously, I would like, you know, go to a coffee shop and like get the latte and like spread open my book and like take a picture (laughs) of it. Even if I was only going to like read three pages and then be on my phone. Like, (laughs) yeah, I definitely did it. But I think it was as much a signifier to the outside world as a signifier to me that like I'm insecure about my own whatever and I want to be this sort of person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's easy to, to think about like, I mean, back when I was maybe, I guess like in my 20s, this was kind of in the analog days or just the beginning of social media before people were really curating a persona on social media. But there were signifiers back then that people would kind of, like books as decor, like a copy of Infinite Jest in a place of prominence on your bookshelf, like some Thomas Pynchon novels that with mysteriously uncreased spines. I could never do that because I live in utter fear that the entire world is just the Socratic method and that someone would come into my house and be like, oh, Tell me yeah. about that book. And I'd be like, I, I've i never read it. I never read it. I am sorry. So I really, even on my desk right here, I have all these books. I like this office is full of books. You don't see any of them because I don't want anyone being like, what did you think of that one, Alyssa? <laughs> I mean, it's like when I was younger, I would have not, I mean, I guess I never was paranoid about that. But now when I get done reading books, unless they're like one of my very most favorite books, I usually just like get rid of them. I give them away or there's like a bookstore in Echo Park in Los Angeles that sells used books, but it's like a really important part of the community. So I'll give my used books to them to sell and they'll give me like a $10 gift card and I'll get like a coffee or whatever. But I don't really have a lot of books in my house that I have already read. So if someone comes over and they're like, oh, what do you think of Vertigo, the book about Mexico City? I'd be like, I haven't read it yet. These are all aspirations for myself. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I am married to a bookophile. Like, they are his sports. They are his porn. Like, books are everything to him. Like, if he sees one of our kids pick up one of his books, he's like, no, 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 no. Like, book. he always tells them books are precious. But like, And I have instituted a one-in-one-out policy with him because he just buys so many books that I'm like, we got to get rid of some of these. So now I have this love-hate relationship with books where I'm like, they're everywhere. Like they're, but he, like, (laughs) you know, there's some he likes to keep, but I will admit that I have books that I kept that I've read that I'm like, oh, these do make me look smart to like keep these on my section of the bookshelf, which is very small compared to his. But I'll be like, oh, (laughs) you know, back in your mind, you're like, I took a class on Dante. I have all of Dante's Inferno and Paradise and Purgatory, (laughs) I have the whole thing and I like have those books there. And it's like, what am I going to like reopen Dante one day? Probably not. But I'm like, oh, this will spark a conversation about how I studied abroad. Like, I don't know. It's so lame. (laughs) But those are almost like this kind of brings up something that's, I think, important. Like, should we hide the fact that we've done those things? Like, that's cool. That's like a trophy. That's like a smart person merit badge. (laughs) It's like a memory, right? It's like a fridge magnet from this time. Like, I have a lot of books that I either haven't read yet or read once and will never read again. But like, they remind me of a specific time. But like, yeah, like 
signed books that I got when I was like 16 as a gift or like books that I remember because I like interviewed the author for EW or like things that like evoke a specific period where it's like I keep them more as like relics than things I want to read again necessarily. Mm-hmm. Marie Kondo would really disappear. Well, no, it's sparking joy. It's sparking <laughs> joy. joy for you. Yeah. Yeah. She did say you're supposed to have what, like 10 books? Ugh. It's something insane. Ugh. Oh, Marie. <laughs> <laughs> when we were researching this topic, I was thinking a lot about this episode of MTV Cribs. You guys remember that oh, show? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's a, an episode with MTV Cribs that really stuck out to me that had Moby on it. Remember the DJ? The, of course. The bald, he, Natalie Portman. Yeah, 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 yeah. That guy. Do you know, randomly, I know like five people who have hooked up with Moby. They're all like friends of friends. But like every, I know so many people are like, oh, my friend hooked up with Moby. <laughs> <laughs> oh man um for a while i knew a bunch of people who had all hooked up with the guy who played ray on girls oh yeah he was everywhere oh really yeah 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 that's unlikely unexpected good for him though i mean he did great he took that role and he just he ran with it he did great with and, and i didn't hear any creepy stories about him just like yep we hooked up it's like good for you just that he's out there that's great he's doing research he's on a show called girls he needs to know about girls <laughs> <laughs> yeah so in this episode of mtv cribs with moby in it moby has this very insufferable moment, surprise, surprise, where he goes over to his bookshelf and he's like, I just think on this show, nobody ever has any books in their house. So I'm going to tell you about my books. And that has always stuck out to me as like one of the most insufferable moments in MTV history. And I just was, what's the difference between a person who communicates their love of books or reading or, you know, analog consumption of content for as like a social signifier to like make friends and connect with people and someone who's just doing it to feel superior. Alyssa, you're sort of like looking thoughtful. No, because I mean, that's the ultimate, that's the distinction. You know what I mean? Like Dana saying, look, I love my books. I have these books. I color code. Like all of us have things that we love, but we love them because we love them, not for the sake of being loved for loving them, mm-hmm. right? And that's the difference with what you just said about Moby. If he had said in MTV Cribs, you know what I'm so proud of? You know, look at these books. I've read all these books, and it's something I'm so proud of. That is cool. Mm-hmm. Saying everyone who has been on this show before me is adult and I am so smart. Yeah. I am the I am the diversity in your series because look at all of these books. That is the difference. Did you guys see the Architectural Digest, I think, tour with Ashley Tisdale? No. No, I did not. So she, it sort of went viral for a minute because she was like showing off her brand new house and she had all these bookshelves filled with books. And she was like, I'm going to be really honest with you. I told my, the shelves were empty and I told my husband, Architectural Digest is coming and we just can't have empty bookshelves. So we, I just told him to go buy books I read in that. bulk. So she like said, like, we just moved in. These bookshelves were empty. I knew you were coming. So my husband just bought random books to put in the shelf. And like, honestly, I respect that. Yes. 
Yes, totally. I did something similar to that. Like when we moved to LA for the first time, like we lived in West Hollywood and we had all these built-ins in our living room. And my husband reads all this sci-fi and nerdy shit. And I was just like, I don't really want this out on display. The covers are ugly. The spines are ugly. You, A lot of them are used. Like They just don't look good. So we did go to like last bookstore in LA and bought like a bunch of used books that were like Joan Didion and like books that had like <laughs> nice, like, and I was, and I definitely, when I bought all them, I go, I will read these, but I bought them initially for like, you know, we got to fill these bookshelves up and I don't want it to be with like Isaac Asimov or whatever books from about, you know, other planets and alien races and stuff. <laughs> My little sister, we had that moment where I was in her apartment and like, she has a beautiful apartment because my little sister has excellent taste. <laughs> and she had like this really great, like green coffee table book on the British artist, Damien Hirst. And like weirdly through a fluke of like friends of friends, Ian and I on our honeymoon were staying in a house that was owned by Damien Hirst. We don't know him. This was just was like a it weird. Like skull shaped and encrusted yeah. <laughs> in crystals. Yeah. Weirdly, it wasn't. It was just normal. There was like no art or anything. Ooh, disappointing. Whatever. But I told <laughs> Hallie that. I was like, oh my God, like, do you know, like, weirdly, the house we stayed at like happened to be owned by him. And she was like, oh, I don't know who that is. I just like the color of this book. Uh, <laughs> honestly, that's the most Damien Hurst possible way to consume Damien Hurst art. Yeah. That's like actually meta brilliant, I'm going to say. Yeah. I am only putting her like, quote unquote, on blast because I kind of think it's great. I'm like, it was a really pretty green color and like, <laughs> it's an art object, literally. Yeah. I'm Googling the book. <laughs> it's a really pretty green color. I miss coffee table books. You can't really have those when you have kids. Yeah. But I love them. <laughs> I have so many of them. They're just up on high up shelves. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. He's very dark. <laughs> Damien Hurst. Yeah. Oh, his art? Oh, like the formaldehyde shark? Yes! His central theme in a series of artwork in which dead animals, including a shark, a sheep, and a cow, are preserved and have been dissected in formaldehyde. You guys enjoy yourself. (laughs) Oh, man. There were no formaldehyde animals. Allegedly, Dana. You know, intelligence signifiers, I mean, this kind of brings something up, and this is a little bit off of the outline, but just reminded me of, I have found a lot of times that when people start talking about art often I would say about 50% of the time the conversation goes in a fun direction where I feel welcomed into a conversation about art where I admittedly don't have like a ton of deep knowledge and then the other 50% of the time it's just going to be an insufferable pontification session by a person who just really wants to communicate to me that they had rich parents Um, (laughs) it's like this class projection where I'm just like shut up I don't <laughs> care yeah it's uh but Damien Hurst is one of I think he was like the person they were parodying in that movie uh Exit Through the Gift Shop do you remember that well Exit Through the Gift Shop I thought is about um Banksy Banksy, Banksy. yeah but I think that Miss whatever the fake artist that they made up Mr. Brainwash Mr. Brainwash I think is supposed to be a parody of Damien Hurst Oh, guys, I think I'm finding out right now for the first time that Mr. Brainwash is not a real artist. I thought that was just part of it. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Brainwash wasn't real. Anyway, I wanted to talk again. uh, Let's bring it back to the intelligence conversation and projection of intelligence. There's another thing from the Internet that sticks out to me as something as to kind of dovetail with something Dana said earlier, because it really connects with some self-loathing I have about myself. There's a reductress headline from a few years ago that says, I was a gifted child, says 35-year-old woman again. And uh, it sort of reminded me of how, you know, every few years there's like this kind of upswell 
in gifted child discourse, and every time it comes up again, it's it's very uh, annoying. Dana, you're sort of like smiling. Can you kind of like any any excuse to talk about my ACT score again? <laughs> what what was your ACT score, Dana? Oh, I got a thirty six. It's no. Oh, big okay. Deal. Thank you so much. Is that like Thank perfect? You. That's a perfect ACT. I took the ACT because my mom was like obsessed with the college process, and even though I lived in Connecticut and nobody took the ACT, she's like, just take it and see if you do okay. And then I did like just fine. <laughs> Or because if you were on the East Coast and you took the ACT and it was better than your SAT score, you could submit that one instead. Right. That's what my mom thought. She's like, let's roll the dice. And then I think my SATs were better. Yeah. Weirdly, in the Midwest, we were an ACT people. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I always heard. Yeah. Yeah. And some of you were perfect ACT people. But yeah, it's like it. I think it like contributed to this like weird self-loathing where it's like. I should be reading The New Yorker and not on Twitter all day. And I feel like I have, you know, my brain has rotted out of my ears and I'm a a wash of wasted potential. (laughs) You know, the gifted child discourse, I think, is on one hand, it's like kind of it's interesting. Like Dana, finding out that you got a perfect ACT score was like, huh, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to know about a friend. But I've also found that like sometimes people who bring up being a gifted child haven't really accomplished much since they were children. And that's sort of like the last cool thing they did. Carol, were you like a gifted kid? Was that something that that you were identified as? Um, I think I was like cusp on the cusp of gifted. I remember always being in like high reading groups and stuff. I was never great at math or anything, but I was on like my daughter is now I can already see she's extremely verbal. Like she's ahead of the curve on verbals and talking, but like, you know, I don't know if she's going to be able to count better than anyone else. But, um, <laughs> you know, so I remember feeling like, the superiority of like, oh, well, I'm in like reading group five. So like, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember like, but I never was like plucked out of class to be in a gifted program or anything. But I went to like a really, really competitive public school where everybody was trying to go to Ivy League schools like the whole time. So I never would have thought that I was any smarter book wise than other kids. I think I'm smarter in other ways, but like not, you know, book smarter than my right. smarter at avoiding being victimized by a serial killer. Because yes, been exactly. Or like mm-hmm. I have like I was always very active in stuff at school. Like I was the treasurer and the head of the yearbook and on the paper and all that stuff. And so I was like, it's OK if like I'm only getting like if I'm getting low A's, high B's, because I do all this other stuff, you know? And I mm-hmm. think I convinced my parents that was okay, too. Isn't it funny how much the college search, like, uniquely fucks everyone up? Oh, yeah. Like, it kind of warps your brain permanently forever. Like, I'm already thinking about how differently I'm going to do it with my kids. Yeah? Like, c- can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, like, my mom just, I'm the oldest of six kids. My mom was a valedictorian of her class, but just went to a school that gave her a free ride. So she went to the University of Rochester, which is a great school, but, and she went to the Eastman School of Music because she was also a piano player. She ended up going to nursing school and then medical school and became a doctor. My mom's very accomplished and I'm very proud of her, but she was just like, so obsessed with the college search and like I started looking when I was a sophomore and then I took the PSAT and the SAT and the ACT it was like I was in like test prep for all that stuff and I was only 17 when I graduated high school and started college I think it probably would have behooved me to like take a year off be a little bit older like I just was 
17 picking the classes I was going to take as a freshman in college. Like I had no idea. And just the pressure of going to the best one and looking at all the lists. And my school published a list of where everybody went to college. We did sort of that thing where it was like, we had such a college school that like on the last day of school, you wear your college shirt and everyone gets to be like, ah. Yeah, it was like in the school newspaper. And I think in the town newspaper, the town newspaper put where everybody was going to college. And like, it would be like, taking a year off oh my god you know like you would like whisper about if someone was and if, even if someone was going to UConn which is a great school mm-hmm. especially if you play basketball yeah but if it's a state school everybody was like uh or whatever you know like it was so judgy like the whole process was so judgy and I just feel like I'm gonna just be way more lax with my kids try to get an idea of what they want to do like not say like not act like college is the only thing they can do when high school's over and mm-hmm. you know I don't know, look at more in-state options because I can't afford these private schools because they're all going to be $100,000 a year when my kids go to college. Right. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's just, I don't blame my mom. It's just that was like the culture, like where Mm -hmm. I grew up. Like everybody was just so obsessed, you know? I think gifted kid discourse came from a place of good intentions, but it did end up kind of fucking us all up individually. And like other parents that I'm seeing that are our age, Kara, have had similar, like they've said similar things to me, like people who went all the way through school thinking like, okay, now I'm going to go to a good high school. Now I'm going to get good grades in high school. Then I'm going to take the test and test and test. And I'm going to get into the best college I can. And like focusing so much on leveraging their giftedness into some kind of collegiate outcome. I mean, that's how I was. And I look back on, my college choice and I'm made great friends at Notre Dame. But if I were to go back in time and talk to my 17 year old self, I would have told myself to go somewhere else. I would have told myself to go to the university of Wisconsin, honestly, in-state tuition, great school. Mm. I love Madison. It just would have been a better fit for me culturally. But instead I was so focused on being like, you're a gifted kid. You got to do this. You got to push it to the best of your abilities. You got to go out of state. You got to do this. You got to do this. And you know, it's fine. My life turned out fine. I turned out marginally fine. But you know, when Juniper's getting older, I'm, I'm not going to funnel her the way that I was funneled by well-intentioned people. I will say it just seems like kind of damaging. Alyssa, you look like you have something to say. Oh, no. I was just going to say that when I was in high school, I think one of the worst things that happened was when we took the IQ test. Oh, because you guys, it turned out that like my IQ didn't match my output in high school. (laughs) In what way? Like I did fine. I did fine. I was a very engaged person, but like schoolwork's never really been my thing. And so between like the honors, like I was in the honors program and I would do fine in the honors program. But at the end, what the teachers would do is, you know, we had the regents program. And so I was in, for example, regents, I was in uh, AP chemistry. And I opted out of taking the AP because I was like, fuck it, I don't want to do the work. And then the teacher gave us the previous year's AP and I got a five, which is the highest score. And so it's like that I was just never motivated by grades, which always made me seem lazy. Like I like the experiences. And like Aaron, to your point, I at the time was like pretty disappointed when I didn't get into Cornell, Georgetown, Brown or any other Ivy League school. But I ended up going to the University of Vermont and University of Wisconsin. And I am a great person because of it. I think I would have ended up 
uncool and not me had I gone someplace that required me to be competitive when I am just functionally not a competitive person. I do my own thing. Like when I took Japanese class, it was because I wanted to learn Japanese. I never thought I was going to get good grades in it, you know, but it's like made me a more interesting person. And so I'm just very lucky that my parents were like fine with that. (laughs) That is really nice. I feel like I'm sort of the opposite, like the cautionary tale where like I was the classic like gifted kid, like pulled out of class. Like I was doing like math packets in the other room, like in elementary school. Didn't you start like a poetry club for fun in high school? Yeah. I mean, I was just like a classic. I like tried to get them to teach Latin. Like I was like a classic high school overachiever, like president of every club, straight A student, like, you know, like sports, whatever. I like, you know, applied early decision to Brown. It was like my dream school. I got in and I was like, by this point was like severely anorexic and depressed. And like my college experience, if I had taken a year off and like been in therapy, but I would have been humiliated. Like for that reason, it was like, you got into Brown, you're going to Brown. Like there was no off ramp for me. And I kind of wasted my college experience just being like, well, I'm smart. I have to be pre-med and like do all this. And like, I didn't have a lot of friends because I was like, had dealing with like severe depression and eating disorder stuff. And like, it really fucked me up for a long time where it's like, then I came out the other side, not knowing how to validate myself where I'm like, okay, well, like what's the next like college to get into? Like, Mm -hmm. do I have to get published by this place? Do I have to get a book published? And like for a long time and still probably now, like I'm always kind of chasing like, Okay, well, when I have a book deal, like, okay, well, when it's a New York Times bestseller, like, okay, well, when X, Y, Z, and I'm slowly trying to unlearn that. But I do think like that pipeline, the way it wired my brain, Mm -hmm. it has not been healthy or happy. Mm -hmm. Sorry, this became a therapy session. No, no. Yeah, no, it's this is great. I mean, it's like, I think that the gifted discourse and the projecting intelligence discourse kind of, we can trace it back to the like, gifted kid pipeline and and like, yeah. And the harm and danger that comes from equating our own self-worth from external validation of achievements that everyone agrees are achievements. Um, yeah. And Kara, I, you you started talking. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I, I think that I, I, I totally hear what you're saying, Dana. And I feel like it's also because you're in this literary world, which I would imagine that like college and education carries like that's currency there. That's really important. For me, it was so shocking when I got to New York and I was in the NBC page program and I would meet people that went to Princeton, but then I would meet people from schools I had never heard of. And I was like, Oh, say what you will about the entertainment industry. It's filled with terrors and nightmares, but nobody really gives a shit where you went to college. Like Mm -hmm. it, like the education aspect of it doesn't really matter. And that was kind of like refreshing to me. Like I was like, I think that's also changed my perspective of like how I'm going to handle it with my kids is like, well, what if, sure. If they express an interest in like becoming doctors early on. Yeah. That is going to make a difference. You know, it does make a difference where you go to school, depending, you know, for getting into the medical school and blah, blah, blah. But like, if they're like, oh, I think I want to go into entertainment or I want to go into some of these fields where it just really isn't that big of a deal. Or like I had friends that blew all this money getting their master's in education at Ivy League schools. And it's like you could be doing the same job you're doing right now, having gotten that at a if you're not going to be a principal. That was kind of a crazy move, but it's a move you made because you're from our town where you your parents wanted to put a Columbia bumper sticker on their car. You know, like I understand I kind of thought that that was interesting when I got to the entertainment business that nobody really cares about that kind of stuff. 
My husband went to Portland State. Yeah. And like is extremely successful. You know what I mean? Like he does great. It's great. He's also very smart and kicks my ass at Trivial Pursuit all the time. And reminds me. <laughs> yeah, my husband's one of the smartest people I know, but like grew up in West Virginia and like went to the, a school that gave him a free ride, you know, like it's just, I mean, everybody has these different circumstances, but I feel like if you talk to me at 22, I was like totally like summing people up based on where they went to school. And now I feel like it's, you know, I've got a way different perspective on it. And do you still feel in the literary world like it's very like, oh, Brown, Harvard, like where like people want to treat you a certain way because of where you went to school? I mean, I I will also say like depressed as I was, like I genuinely loved Brown. Mm-hmm. Like I thought it was like an amazing school and like I had a great academic experience there. And like, yeah, like I, I do get some I think it's my own like insecurity, but like I get currency from like, I think being able to use it as a shorthand of people to be like, oh, she's smart, like, Mm -hmm. you know, which is my own, like, shallowness and insecurity. But I also do think in, in, like, meetings with people, you know, like, you know, general meetings, if I say, oh, I went to Brown, they're immediately like, oh, this girl writing about history is, like, also they, I think, mentally do, like, put me in a smart category, which is just, I don't have to do the work for that. It's just, like, a shorthand, Mm -hmm. which is just, like, yeah, I, I, enjoy that, which is a bad thing for me. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder if the proliferation of like book talk and like social media signifying of like what, you know, books you're consuming that are like, I don't know, more highbrow. I want to, that's not a politically correct term, but you know what I mean? People like projecting how much they're reading and what they're reading as a way to be validated as smart is a sort of like alternative way to what we've always used which is like this harmful idea that where you go to school is like a reflection of your intelligence or the way that we have assessed other people's intelligence before because I mean it's sort of a on one hand it's a curated accessory that is designed to have people see you a certain way but on the other hand it's a way to be like just because I didn't go to this fancy school doesn't mean that I'm not smart it doesn't mean that I can't enjoy challenging books it doesn't mean that like I didn't need to go to like Brown or NYU or Harvard or Yale or whatever in order to understand this and to participate in this and so maybe like on one hand like you know books as accessories I dated this guy once who just had this bookshelf full of books that he like had not read and it was the most irritating and like he would pretend to have I don't know it was he was like one of the most irritating people I've ever met but I think that book talk isn't necessarily just like an exercise in vanity I think that it's like a way for people to be like I'm smart too you know I mean it's everything about social media is like finding self-worth whether it's through connection or through community or through like projecting a version of you where you feel good about yourself. And I do think book talk is like, all you need is a good camera and like a good aesthetic. And you can project a version of yourself that is smart or put together or organized or whatever you need to make you feel good about yourself. And Mm -hmm. is there like a possibility too, that book talk is almost like a backlash to like what TikTok is generally, which is like someone doing a 10 second dance move, you know, like Mm -hmm. you can be, hugely popular on TikTok by having rhythm and be gorgeous and 17. Whereas like other people are like, well, 
uh, we're going to take back TikTok and like make it about like things that are actually, or do you think I'm putting too much on it and that these people don't even read the books? I don't know. I don't really know a lot about book talk. <laughs> I also will say a lot of book talk is like what probably like Twitter, New York literary world would consider like less sophisticated books. Like it's a lot of like YA yeah, and yeah. like romance and um like elves and like fantasy, like that sort of like romance fantasy adjacent things. And so I think it also is this like reclamation of like, oh, we get to feel good about ourselves mm. too, just because we're not reading Thomas Pinchon. Like we can feel like bookish. We can feel like Belle in Beauty and the Beast <laughs> reading Colleen Hoover, which like you should, that's great. You should feel good about yourself doing whatever you like to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and our um, our associate producer, Fiona brought something interesting up as we were kind of narrowing down this topic. And that was that having an analog life, a life outside of social media is now something that is kind of like a thing to brag about because we've all been so like consumed by existing in this online space and feeling like we're constantly performing to be able to read is to have time to yourself where you're actually, yeah, you're like, Hey guys, look, I, I exist outside of this space. I have an analog life and this is how I'm choosing to spend time um, instead of just completely sucked into this social media world, which I think is an interesting trend um, and, and probably troublesome to people who own stock in meta, uh, that more young people <laughs> are just like, I exist elsewhere. And uh, it's a kind of way to assert that as well. Okay, that is all the time we have. We are right on the minute for how much time we have for this conversation. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Sani Petty. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious... He'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails Tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference... Sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com, and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com store to shop. 
Welcome back. Before we get to Sandy Petty, a little bit of housekeeping. House, let's keep the house. Alyssa, let us keep the house. Don't let Election Day sneak up on you this year. I'm imagining Election Day like a very scary yes. entity, like physically sneaking up on me. Uh, I will not let that happen. There's a lot on your ballot, and you don't want to get caught off guard. Vote Save America is here to help you figure out the who, what, when, and where of voting. Use their tool to learn about every position, candidate, and ballot measure you're voting on and build your own ballot to use as a handy voting cheat sheet. Next, you can find your times, places, and options for voting and make a plan all in one place. November 8th, Election Day is your last chance to vote. Head to votesaveamerica.com to make sure you're ballot ready. Ooh, new merch. Love merch, especially when it's our merch. Yeah, there's a new drop at the Crooked Store for you Hysteria fans. Feel and look your pettiest or prettiest, prettiest and pettiest, in brand new designs. We even have something for the ultimate drama starters, babies. Oh, babies love drama. And of course, if you wake up every day to a wave of dread washing over you, We've got you covered. Can Old Navy say that? Definitely not. <laughs> it would be funny if Old Navy did start saying that. <laughs> we can cloak you on top of your cloak of dread. Uh, check it out at crooked.com slash store. Okay, the house has been kept. Now let's do Sanity Corner slash I Feel Petty, a.k.a. Sanny Petty. Dana, are you going to talk Sanity Corner or I Feel Petty this week? Um, Probably Sanity Corner. Okay. It's sort of a combination. It's feeling petty to keep myself sane. Okay. Um, (laughs) I am no longer embarrassed to admit, like, I'm a huge Swifty. Like, a full, like, listen to every album, like, know all the words, bonus tracks. I have it on vinyl. Like, I have Taylor Swift merch. Whatever. It's been since I was, like, 15. And, like, I'm the right age where it's, like, all of these have grown up for me. So, like, she announced a new album, Midnight's. Everyone knew I was very excited. My husband gave me ample time just to sit and listen to it myself because I needed to absorb it. I am very disappointed in the Jack Antonoffy sound of it. Um, mm. Wow. They, I know, and it's it's unusual for me to um, say bad things about anything Taylor Swift because there are songs on this album I like. But to me, as like a a red folklore speak now girly this is a bit more of like the reputation lover era uh-huh. and jack antonoff has like a very specific like bleachersy sound mm-hmm. and it makes all these songs kind of sound the same and there's a lot of synth and a lot of like that snare hi-hat and i'm just like uh yeah they all blend together and it doesn't do it for me and i think jack antonoff um should have a three-year ban on working on female pop stars' albums. (laughs) Just a moratorium just to think. And I think whatever went down between Taylor Swift and Max Martin, I will personally mediate. (laughs) I will get them to to work back together, no matter what this beef is. And I really hope her next album is just like a sort of a country throwback of like lyrics and a guitar. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah. So good. I just did a show in Nashville right as it was coming out. And I was like, you guys love Taylor here, right? And they were like, yeah. And we were like, so what do we think about the new album? And they were like, woo. And we were like, "Is does it sound like all the other albums? And they were like, yes. And we were like, and that's what you want? And they were like, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, <laughs> whatever you guys yeah. say. Because I cannot, I don't know the difference of all these albums, but they do sound a lot alike. This one to me felt very, I mean, this is now getting very specific. It felt like a retread of Lover with some 
reputation vibes. And I just think it's very, very Jack Antonoff. Like you could fully tell he produced every track and it makes every track on the album kind of sound the same. But that said, I would never speak ill of the Queen. And there are songs on this I like, and I will be at the at the Midnight's concert in Los Angeles at the Sophie Stadium. (laughs) Dana, look, I do not have the level of knowledge that you do, but I of course, was like, I've got the album. But because I'm always trying to conserve space on my phone, I was like, let's see if I like all the songs and if I should download all the songs. And I listened to them all and I was like, they kind of sound a lot alike. So I picked the ones I like the best. I, I That anti-hero song's really stuck in my head. Yeah, Catchy. it's good. Yeah. And I like anti-hero. I like mastermind. I like karma. I like coulda, shoulda, woulda. Oh, the I think rest, those are the ones I downloaded. Yeah, the rest are maybe like a little more ambivalent. Down. You know, it... Reminded me a lot of like Tumblr pop from like 2011. Um, Someone tweeted that Taylor Swift is our last link to AIM away messages, and it was the smartest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, it's like a listenable album, but you know, I'm not a Taylor, I'm not a Swifty, I'm not a full on Swifty. I listened to it because I was like, well, I feel like I'm going to need to know what this album is if I want to participate culturally with women in the next over the next month. So I'm going to listen to it so that I know what it is. And uh, yeah, so uh, well, I hopefully she takes your advice, Dana. I hope she's listening. Um, if I could go go back to Oxford and get a PhD in Taylor Swift studies, my Instagram would be phenomenal. <laughs> Have you gone on that girl's podcast? There's this girl that has a podcast that's like uh, your favorite Taylor Swift song. And no. it's like she just has people on and they talk about their favorite Taylor Swift song. And I told her I would go on. Uh, but you know what? Still haven't been booked. So we'll see. I would love that. <laughs> Whoever it is, if she listens to this, uh, let me talk about Dear John. Um, okay. That's a good Sandy Petty. Um, I am going to go next. I'm going to, I feel petty this week. Uh, something happened that really crystallized exactly why the internet has become intolerable. And, uh, it happened on Twitter. So on October 21st, a person who calls herself a plant mom tweeted, my husband and I wake up every morning and bring our coffee to our garden and sit and talk for hours every morning. It never gets old and we never run out of things to talk about. Love him so much. That's a sweet thing that she has with her husband. Um, The replies, a fucking (laughs) beehive of bad faith. Like, oh, outrageous. Incredible. Wait, I miss this. What, What do they say? You're lying. I wake up every day with chronic pain and wash my OCD medication down with an iced oat milk latte, but whatever. Potato, potato. Everyone were saying things like, oh, how privileged of you to have a garden. Or like, oh, your job, you could sit outside for hours before work. By the way, you could have a garden outside of a shack in the middle of Iowa. Like, I mean, what? Totally. Yeah. People were just so furious about it. And it was like... I don't know where it came from. I don't know why people started piling onto this person being like, I'm in a loving relationship and experience joy with my partner in the morning and it makes me happy. It just made people so furious. Twitter's not a place for joy, I don't think, right? No. I think Instagram people maybe are a little bit more into like, oh, look how happy they look at their wedding or look how much fun they're having on vacation. But on Twitter... I don't think anyone wants to see anybody happy. It is a misery hive. Yeah. Responses were just absolutely absurd, over the top. And I was thinking as this whole thing went down, I thought, you know, 
we as a society are not okay. Like we are, people are not doing okay. My favorite response was someone being like, um, I looked at your profile and it looks like you've only been married for a few months. Yeah. Call me when you still want to talk to your husband in a few years. As if like liking your husband is privileged. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. I just can't imagine taking the time to even respond to that. Like, it's not, I don't know. You don't have to fave it. Just move on with your life. If you find it annoying, just scroll on. It's so easy. You only need to use even, like, a single finger. You yeah. can just move your finger, scroll on, and not reply. Wow. Um, yeah, it was just absurd, the response to it. And I was just like, you know what? I Maybe it is good that Elon Musk might burn Twitter down because maybe the world would be better I mean, it's good for like breaking news sometimes and, and like and stuff like that. But I don't know if the good outweighs the bad yeah. at this point. It's a misery machine. So that's what I'm feeling petty about this week. Just like let people be happy. If you don't like that they're happy, you can just like say nothing. You don't have to be like, I'm going to make you sadder. It sucks. It's bad behavior. Um, OK, Alyssa, Sanity Corner or Petty this week? You guys, I'm very petty this week. Very petty. OK, we need to talk about the number of emails we're getting oh my from god our candidates it's and here's many. the problem if it were just the emails i could maybe deal i mean i can't tell you how much fucking time i spend unsubscribing to things people i have never heard of in my life have gotten my email from somewhere and the weirdest there's some weird things that have happened one I'm getting emails from like Marco Rubio. Yes. How the fuck yes. did he get my email address? Oh, I was right? getting them from Carrie Lake. I was getting them from Me people. Too. And I kept unsubscribing. And every time I unsubscribe, it's the same company. So I'm like, you yes. know that I don't want this. And it's, it's like from crazy. Freedom Fighters or whatever bullshit. They yes. Say. And I was like, is this because I maybe, and I don't even know if I did this, but did I sign up for like a Trump rally to like take away tickets, that whole thing people would do? I don't think I even did that, but how are they getting my email? The other thing is, I have two emails. One, I use for political contributions and ordering shit off the internet. Yes, yeah, same. The other one is my business email, and my, my professional email. And they've been coming to my professional email now, and I'm like, I have never used this email to donate to anything. I don't know how I'm getting them, but the big problem are the texts. You guys, I am missing critical information from people. Truly. Like, people who text me are like, it's like, hey, this is happening now. Like, I don't just, like, fucking keep up with people on text. That's not really my vibe. And I woke up, got off a of Zoom the other day. I had nine text messages that are so incendiary. Alyssa, we've emailed you ten times. <laughs> Barack Obama has called on you. I was like, listen, Barack Obama wants to call me. He's got my number. Stop trying with these emails. But like, they're so incendiary. And so anyway, it made me so mad. I keep trying to unsubscribe. I keep, and they're also tricky. Like at the end, it'll say stop to end. And it's like, do I have to hit stop? Or do I have to stop, type stop to end to get off this fucking distribution? But I found one thing that was my sanity corner, which is that I found someone who clearly feels the same way. She rewrote like these emails we get, 
but as if it was a family email. <laughs> and so here's the subject. Subject. Aunt Shelly does not want you to read this. Aunt Shelly is furious, all caps. She claims she hasn't been invited to Thanksgiving, but you and I both know that's blatant misinformation. A quick fact check confirms she got a Facebook invite but hasn't responded yet. Imagine <laughs> Thanksgiving without Aunt Shelly's cornbread. Nothing to sop up the gravy. Nothing for sandwiches the next day. And we know this is just the beginning already. She's threatening not to bring the stocking stuffers at Christmas. Dad, I don't have to tell you how upsetting this is. Will you text cousin Eliza and tell her what, <laughs> ask her what the deal is? I and everybody started doing their own and replying to this thread. I wrote the Aunt Shelley one because I think it was Akila's favorite. I saw her response to it on, <laughs> on the thread. But it's like, just stop. Stop with the blinking lights. They all look like crazy emails from bad casinos in Vegas. Mm -hmm. It's like, please yeah. just stop. It's like I'm getting mad at people I want to vote for right now, and I need them I need them to please stop. Please. And somebody pointed this out, that these excessive emails and texts make it harder for the people that are actually doing more effective yes. volunteering, like canvassing, like – Look, I don't like being canvassed because half the time the baby is sleeping and I have a dog that barks. And if somebody knocks on my door, oh, like you have – do not, do not, do, don't. Please. You should put a sign up. Yeah, it's just says, like, like – don't knock sleeping baby. I feel like you should put a sign up. I, I full on like yelled at a Rick Caruso volunteer. Not like, fuck you, get out of here. But it was just like, no, 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 I'm not voting for him. Get him – get out of here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's – but but – Still, that work is really valuable, especially in places like get out the vote campaigns and stuff like that. And the excessive, desperate emails are not helping any. It makes me not want to contribute to anyone. And it doesn't make me contribute to you when you right. send me a crazy email. Like, no. No. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, Kara, Sanity Corner or Petty this week? Um, okay, well, I think I'm just going to go sanity, I guess, because, you know, maybe we need a little bit of sanity. I don't really have um, anything super concrete. I was just going to say that I'm really looking forward to Halloween. <laughs> like, my, cool. you know, I don't really care. I I've always been, like, whatever about Halloween. Like, if I have a good costume, I'm excited to go out. But if I don't, I've spent Halloween's in. But just doing it again with your kids is really fun. And my daughter's just so pumped. And we have all these little parties this weekend. And little fairs that we're going to and stuff. And I'm just excited to see them in their costumes because they're really <laughs> cute. And honestly, I don't mean to be a downer, but I'm like, what am I looking forward to right now? And that's like all I can think of. <laughs> Wait, what? She's not going to be a cop again, is she? A no, she was. Listen, she was a cop dog. She was Chase. I just okay. sold that costume yesterday and I did <laughs> not tell her, but she is going to be a bat. Ooh, that's a fun one. Yeah. Spooky. And she really transforms when she's in that bat costume. And then my son is going to be a costume that some lady gave me for free. She goes, just get out of my house. If you don't want it, you can throw it away. And he loves it. It's a monkey costume. And he's going to be a little monkey and he looks really cute. Cute. And um, I just think it's like one of those things that it's fun to like redo with your kids because, oh, you know, I have so much fun. So that's all. I know I don't have anything super I wish I could be more petty but my mind is like dead <laughs> that's a good sanity corner did I tell you about our family Halloween costumes I you told me about Wednesday okay yeah I have a Wednesday costume for Juniper but I don't know how to make her wear a wig I, I don't think it's gonna work she doesn't look like Wednesday out she her hair is bl like golden so she doesn't work as Wednesday unless she has a, a wig on so I don't know if it's gonna work but 
our family Halloween costume is we are dressing as the bad guys from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm going to be Master Shredder. Josh and Juniper are going to team up to be Krang, the brain. He's going to wear her. She's going to be the little brain. She has a brain <laughs> costume that my mom made her. And Cute. My gosh. Yeah. And we're going to like jerry-rig the like baby Bjorn and like make it look like she's just like in a little tank on his midsection. He got a muscle <laughs> thing and... I think, I hope it works. And I just walked by Aaron's house the other day and stopped by for a little hello with my it's kids. It's incredible. And uh, that family goes in on Halloween. <laughs> like that, <laughs> and you guys are killing it. Like we were like, okay, one, we're going to get a couple decorations every year and like build up a collection. And these guys are like, have a full we, graveyard. Yeah, like. <laughs> we got a fog machine. Um, yeah, I'll post pictures to social once the holiday is over and we've taken everything down because I like don't want people to know where I live. But but I will share it. It's It's pretty cool. My husband, he really went ham. Where did he go? Where did he get most of that stuff? Uh, I am terrified to even ask. Oh, okay. Um, I feel like it was many places, and it costs probably more than that. If I saw it all written down, I'd be like, "That's that's maybe too much." <laughs> and I'm usually the more spendthrifty one between the two of us, so you know that it's probably a lot. But it is a lot of fun to decorate a yard for Halloween, and and it is something I'm looking forward to. We've got like people stopping by and like taking pictures at night and stuff so that's like kind of cool yeah I take spooky walks with my kids and you're on the spooky walk tour now oh well that's <laughs> so great okay well folks that's all the time we have Dana and Kara thank you so much for stopping by Alyssa thank you for being my ride or die thank you to Lorena Austin for stopping by and thanks to all of you our listeners there will be more hysteria for you next week Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our senior producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer. And Fiona Pastana is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers. And our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 